So we'll get right into it this morning, and today my message comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, and uh, I'm calling it Living Worthy of the Gospel. And Philippians is considered Paul's most personal letter, full of warmth and affection, and one of the primary messages of Philippians is the joy that believers can have in any circumstance. And despite writing this letter from prison, Paul is overflowing with gratitude and joy. And while joy is a major theme in the book, I would say that the major theme is that of being partners in the gospel. See, yes, Paul is full of joy, but his joy is based on the gospel and the fact that he and the Philippians are partners in the gospel together. He encourages the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi to help them in their Christian walk and to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. So before we get going here, let's turn our attention to the screen as we watch this video. It's going to give us some context uh, leading up to the verses we'll be looking at today. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, And they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad, because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. 
For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. Paul then turns to the Philippians, and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism. But their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution. But they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. So Philippians 1, 27 to 30 says, Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your words this morning, God. I pray, Lord, that as we dive into them, as we listen to them, Lord, may we uh, come with open hands and open hearts and open ears, Lord. I ask, God, that uh, as I speak, may they be your words. In your name I pray. Amen. So what does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? Well, we got to be careful here because one important aspect of the gospel is that we are not inherently deserving or worthy of God's favor. We can't earn it through our actions or deeds. In fact, we've all made mistakes and gone against his ways, which means we've all fallen short of his glory. But here's the good news. The Bible teaches us that God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to sacrifice himself for our sins. And this incredible act allows us to be reconciled with God. The gospel is all about God's grace, which means receiving something that we didn't deserve. It's the opposite of being worthy or earning it. Romans 6.23 explains it like this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, when we receive the gospel or when we receive salvation, we aren't just assenting to a set of beliefs. We are being made new. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. The gospel isn't merely a message we believe, rather it has the power to change us and make us more like Christ. Amen? 
See, living worthy of the gospel, therefore, implies living in a way that reflects this transformation. It's about demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's about being salt and light in the world and displaying the character of Christ in our interactions with others. So when we talk about living worthy of the gospel, we're not talking about living in such a way as to earn the benefits of the gospel. Rather, we're talking about living in such a way to reflect the reality that God has already forgiven us, that he has forgiven you in Christ. You cannot live worthy to receive the gospel. Rather, you should live worthy of the gospel that you have received. And so having established that, we will look at three things this morning that, Paul's, that Paul tells us in our passage for today. And that brings me to our first point, whatever happens. That's the first point. It's just two words. Whatever happens, Philippians 1, 27, part A of that verse. It reads like this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And here's a principle we can learn from this verse. And so I'm going to go to point 1A. We must make a firm decision to live our lives for Christ no matter what happens. You see, the Bible Project video we watched just a few seconds ago tells us that Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. And he is waiting on the court's decision and knows that he faces a possible death sentence. But he's not afraid of death. Now, Paul believes he will remain and will be restored to these partners in the gospel, the Philippians, whom he loves dearly. But he doesn't know for sure. So he tells them, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The phrase, or this phrase, whatever happens, translates the Greek word manun, which in this context is typically translated as only or just And translations today often use whatever happens to communicate the broad sense that Paul is trying to convey, which is that in every situation, regardless of what occurs, the Philippian believers should live in a way that reflects the gospel. Paul also uses the metaphor of citizenship in this verse. And the Greek verb used for conduct yourselves here refers to behaving As a citizen would. See, Philippi was a Roman colony and its citizens took pride in their status. The video told us that. So Paul is using this metaphor to stress the importance of living in a manner worthy of their citizenship in the gospel of Christ. And what does that mean for us? Well, you may take this job or that job. You may buy this house or that house. You may go to one school or another. You may live in Washington or move out of state. But whatever happens, Paul is saying, only, only, only this. Live worthy of the gospel. You may not agree with someone's post on social media. And I'd say, especially as we're heading into this politically heightened season, I'm sure a lot of that will happen. But still, only Only this, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. The person you support might not win. Only this, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Dan and I, as your pastors, are committed to this. Our leadership team are committed to this. LifeSpring, those of you sitting in here, those of you tuned in online, I hope that you are also committed to this, that no matter what happens, let's make the conscious decision to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because regardless of who is sitting in that office, people need Jesus. See, I'm okay with you hoping a certain person will be elected, but never confuse that with our true hope, which is in Christ and Christ alone. People need the Lord. Church, God gives us a lot of freedom. He does. And he gives us a lot of latitude in the choices we make. But no matter your choices, no matter your circumstances, no matter what you're going through, put Christ and the gospel first. Determine to live for Christ, whatever happens. Romans 12.2 advises us, do not confirm to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, Paul was in a tough situation But it did not affect his relationship with God. He had learned to trust God in the good seasons and in the bad seasons. And see, just because Paul was in a bad one did not mean that God had abandoned him. In fact, God was using Paul where he was to further advance the gospel. And so Paul could rejoice even though he was in prison facing a potential death sentence. So... Conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is a holistic endeavor. It's about reflecting the love, humility, service, and forgiveness of Jesus in our everyday life. And we are empowered to do this through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, enabling us, as Ephesians 4.1 says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you and I, to which we have been called to. Part of living worthy of the gospel of Christ is developing this whatever attitude of Paul. Church, determined to live for Christ no matter what happens. Point two, together as one. Philippians 27b. The second part of verse 27 says, Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. It is not easy to live a life worthy of the gospel. Like when you start to take a stand for Christ and the gospel in your life, you will face opposition. The enemy attacks hoping that you will back off, that we will back off, and the gospel will fade away into the background. We just talked about camp this week, and so many of us were at middle school camp. I was there myself, and uh, I chat with Brayden before, and one of the stories that came out in our, like, late night debrief, we're like at 11.15, just kind of debriefing how the day went. And we're sitting in that circle, and I believe it was probably the second day of camp, if not, yes, the second day of camp, and we had a few campers who wanted to go home. And Braden says, you know what? We're just going to take the authority we have in the name of Jesus, and let's pray that they will stay. And so that's what the group did. 
And that was all that our prayers were uh, surrounded around. And we prayed for those campers. And do you know what? They stayed throughout the whole week. I tell you that to tell you, it is not easy to live a life worthy of the gospel. The enemy will try to come in and discourage you. The Lord was doing an amazing work in those campers. And sometimes when you buck up on things like that in the spirit, it's easier to walk away from it than to walk it through. But when you come in the authority and in the name of Jesus, I'm telling you, you have victory in him, church. You have victory in him. So in verse 27b, we see that Paul has two instructions for us. When we face opposition for Christ, one, stand firm in one spirit, and two, strive together as one for the gospel. So let's look more closely at these. So point 2a, stand firm in one spirit. Paul is expressing his desire for the Philippians to be consistent in their faith regardless of whether he is physically present with them or not. The verse says, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I know that you will stand firm in one spirit. The reference of standing firm in the one spirit reflects Paul's understanding of the Holy Spirit as the unifying force among believers. The spirit is not a divisive element but a binding one, bringing unity in belief and action. So Paul's expectation of them is to stand firm. And it signifies the need for endurance, consistency, and resilience in faith, even when it becomes difficult. And this language that Paul is using here echoes military terminology and so he's describing what paul is really describing here is a soldier holding their position despite adversity or attack and in this case it represents standing one's ground in the face of spiritual opposition or societal pressures church it's the holy spirit who gives us the power to witness and to stand firm Jesus told his disciples in the book of Acts, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. We can't face the opposition on our own. I mean, we sure can, and and when I do that, I make a mess of it. I don't know about you, and so thankfully we don't have to do that. We have the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit to help us stand firm for Christ. Point two B, strive together as one for the gospel. So Paul's first instructions is to stand firm in one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he tells us we must work together as a team for the gospel. He says, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The phrase striving together translates the Greek word sonatleo which gives a picture of a team working together towards a common goal. And so Paul uses this athletic metaphor to emphasize the need for corporative effort in promoting the gospel. The faith of the gospel refers to the content of the gospel being the good news of Jesus Christ. So Paul is urging unity and corporative effort among believers 
emphasizing that the work of the gospel is communal, not an individual endeavor. And this unity is not only necessary for their spiritual health as a community, but also for the effective propagation of the gospel. Paul is saying we need to work together like a well-trained army, like a well-trained athletic team. This is not just for unity's sake, but for a purpose, and the purpose of probably winning the battle and perhaps even to survive. And if you continue reading in Philippians, you'll see that the problem with the Philippians was that some of them were fighting each other instead of fighting with each other against the enemy. And this is why Paul says to them, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Church, that is a challenge for us today. That still applies to us today. Point three, do not fear. Do not fear. Philippians 1, 28 to 30. Our first point was whatever happens. Our second point was together as one. And point number three is do not fear. And I want to break up point three into two sub-points again. Point three A, do not fear those who oppose you. Verse 28 says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved, and that by God. The word frightened means to be startled or to panic. Now, why would Paul say something like this? Well, for some historical context, the believers in Philippi were living in a predominantly pagan city. And as such, they likely faced opposition, ridicule, and even persecution because of their faith. And so Paul's advice then is to remain steadfast and fearless in the face of opposition that comes with living in that sociocultural context. And I'd say that is our reality today. These things existed back then, but they also existed exist today. We're living in a pagan city. We live in a time and age whereby you will be ridiculed for your faith, where you will face opposition and possibly even be persecuted. Additionally, the use of the term frightened in verse 28 is referencing another military term here, as it was originally used in this context to describe a horse shying away from battle. And Paul uses it metaphorically here to encourage the Philippians to not shy away from the spiritual battle they are facing. Do not shy away from the spiritual battle you may be facing, church. And so, verse 28 encompasses several significant themes. And I'll just highlight three of the things here that stand out. It talks about, it highlights the fact of courage In the face of opposition, the courage of the Philippians in the face of opposition was to serve as a visible sign to their opponents. Their fearlessness would reveal that the believers were confident in their ultimate victory through Christ Jesus. Salvation and destruction. The contrast presented here is striking. The destruction of the opponents versus the salvation of the believers. And this does not necessarily mean physical destruction, but spiritual, referring to separation from God. Conversely, 
salvation isn't just about being saved from destruction, but being saved to a relationship with God. It also talks about God as the source of salvation. The phrase, and that by God, at the end of that verse, underscores that it is God. He is the one who secures their salvation. The assurance of their salvation and the courage to stand firm in the face of opposition comes from God and Him alone. So church, don't be intimidated by those who oppose your faith, but remain steadfast, displaying the confidence that comes from knowing God is with you. Your salvation is secure in God regardless of opposition or hardship, regardless of what the person says on social media. Your salvation is secure in the Lord. And this truth should bring comfort, assurance, and a boldness to live out the gospel courageously. You are on the winning team. Did you know that? You're on the winning team. Our Foursquare president, Pastor Randy Remington, said this in one of his first messages after becoming the president of our denomination. And this is a paraphrase, but he basically said, remember that you are fighting from a place of victory. No matter what you're going through, church, no matter what you're facing today, no matter what you are to face yet, no matter what your family is walking through, you are on the winning team. I have read the end of the book. Have you read it? We win. You don't need to be afraid. You are fighting from a place of victory. Amen. And then finally, Paul says, do not fear suffering for Christ. Point 3b. That's our last point here, I believe. Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Philippians 1.29. There are two things to consider here. One, the gift of faith and suffering. And you're like, how is that a gift? How is suffering a gift? I mean, I've never thought about it that way. But I've come to see things differently. So the gift of faith and suffering. Paul is stating that it has been granted or given as a gracious gift to the Philippians to not only believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. And it's interesting that Paul uses the same Greek word for granted, which is often translated as grace or gift in Scripture. And by doing this, he underlines The fact that both faith and suffering for Christ are considered gifts given to believers. Remember the disciples in Acts 5.41? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And the name referring to Christ. Think about that. They rejoiced. Not sure that I'm fully there yet, you know, but it's a good reminder for me that when I'm walking through suffering, rejoice. Friends, part of living worthy of the gospel is that God counts you worthy to suffer for Christ. Suffering is not usually seen as a privilege, but but Paul frames it in this way. To suffer for Christ is to share in his sufferings which is an intimate participation in his life and mission. This isn't pointless suffering, but meaningful, purposeful suffering that identifies us with Christ 
and furthers his gospel. Therefore, a word-for-word -word translation of Philippians 1.29 from the Greek might read like this, For it has been graciously given to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe into him, but also to suffer on behalf of him. So rather than viewing suffering as a punishment or an anomaly, we can view it as a grace and an opportunity to participate in Jesus' suffering, knowing that it has a purpose and that it is not in vain. The second thing to consider is that other believers are suffering for Christ too. Other believers are suffering for Christ too. Paul says, do not fear suffering for Christ, first of all, because suffering for Christ is a gift of God's grace. And secondly, because others are suffering for Christ too. Look at verse 30. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul had suffered persecution when he was in Philippi. Now the Philippians are going through the same struggle they saw him have when he was still there. And Paul says that he is still experiencing suffering as he writes to them from his prison cell in Rome. The Bible says that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 Others are suffering for Christ. Why do we think we should be exempted? Remember, we are all partners in the gospel together. And so, we should expect opposition. In fact, if we're not experiencing any opposition, then perhaps we need to evaluate whether we are indeed standing firm in one spirit together as one for the gospel. Philippians 1.30 reminds us of the shared struggle we have with fellow Christians around the world. And so, in closing... I want to leave you with some application points for today. First of all, we must make the gospel our number one priority as individuals and as a church. The application is this. Let's reflect on our daily habits and interactions. Are they glorifying Christ? I also want us to consider one specific area in your life, in our lives where you can exhibit more of his love and character. Secondly, we must work hard to maintain unity in the body of Christ. If we are busy fighting each other, we will never be able to stand firm in one spirit and strive together as one for the gospel. The application is this. Engage in dialogues that encourages diversity and strengthen bonds. Participate actively in your small group or Bible study, valuing each other's unique contribution. Also, let me just say this. Unity does not mean uniformity. We can have unity in diversity or different gifts, perspectives, and experiences is what enriches the body of Christ, not divide it. Life spring will be a safe place for everyone. Life spring will be a safe place for everyone. And then thirdly, let us be bold in our Christian faith and witness. We don't need to be rude or disrespectful when people disagree with us or oppose us or ridicule us for the gospel. In fact, 
I pray that you won't, because that would be a poor witness. But let's stop being intimidated by those on the losing team, and let's be bold in our witness for Christ. You're on the winning team. Remember that. At this time, I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up. So what does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? Well, I'll sum it up again in the three points. Whatever happens, determine to live for Christ no matter what. Trust God in the good and bad times. Two, together as one. I want to walk this journey with you, Lifespring. Can we do this together? We're doing it together, but let's continue to do it together. Let's stand firm in the Holy Spirit, working together as a team for the gospel. Three, do not fear. Do not fear those who oppose you. Again, you are on the winning team, and your fearlessness to live for Him is a sign to them. And do not fear suffering for Christ. Remember that suffering for Christ is a gift of God's grace. And remember, there are believers around the world who are also suffering. May we continue to live worthy of the gospel in this day and age. The world around us needs to see it more than ever before in our lives. Those in our families who aren't following or walking with him need to see it more than ever today you are on the winning team amen